It is not this fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see them naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear God. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace and peace to all of you. When you hear the word respond, what comes to your mind? What is it that you have to respond to? By now you know this Lent, we are asking as a church what it means to begin again. And so we are focusing on one word with an R-E prefix each week. And today's word is respond. So what is it that you have to respond to in your life? Are any of you thinking about emails? Because <laughs> that's where my mind goes. Emails or phone calls, perhaps. Or respond to the survey from the health clinic and the school. To the letter that friend sent you a couple months ago. To your banker wanting to know if you're going to refinance. Respond to the dog pawing at the door. And the cats whining for their dinner to the drip under your sink, to the baby who's crying even though he's supposed to be down for another hour. Responding can feel like a chore. It rips your attention away from what you are doing and it places it somewhere else. It gets your body up from off the couch and pauses the show also, you can do the thing that just happened to fall in your lap. 
Nothing you asked for, but something to which you must now respond. My mindset in those moments is, first, I got to do the responding, and then I can get back to life. First, I got to muster through and just respond to the thing, and then I get to be present to the world. Even talking about it here, I can feel myself get a little tight. It's a lot. There's a lot in our lives to respond to. And then there's the responding to all of the social ills like this passage talks about. It feels like I'm barely keeping my own life together. And now I'm on the hook for responding to hunger and homelessness and oppression and poverty. Can you feel the wave hitting you? Can you feel that pile of things to respond to growing larger and weighing down? Can you feel yourself getting overwhelmed? And what does this overwhelm do in your body? How does it feel? Because for me, it feels like a big squeeze, a tightening. My shoulders draw in, my back tenses, my head pops up like a little meerkat, and I can't get a breath too far down past my clavicle. And I get shorter with people, huffier, more resentful. And if my body gets tight enough and enough pressure builds, I'll erupt with the pointing of the finger. You know that posture. You're in over your head, you're feeling stressed, and suddenly you're just swinging your finger around wildly, like it's going to zap somebody. And as soon as it does, you're going to be free of that pile of stuff that you got to respond to. Like, I think if I can accuse someone successfully and make my stress their fault, I'll be free. And so instead of responding, I'll accuse. Do you know what the Hebrew word for accuser is? Ha-satan. Or as we say it in English, Satan. Responding to our lives and to the world from this posture of tightness this posture of accusing and pointing the finger, it's quite literally satanic. And yet that's the pose we go to when we feel on the hook to respond to the world's needs. So why does this passage seem to put us in this satanic posture? It might help to know a little bit more about where these words come from because it turns out that though we hear them that way, they are not actually a call for us to respond. They're not actually a call for us to do more, to heap more on our shoulders. These words, in fact, are God's response. 
They're God's responding to us and to our finger pointing. They were first spoken to a tight-chested people. The ancient Israelites had returned to their homeland after 70 years of exile, of living in a foreign land, and they just wanted to get back to normal. They were smart, and they knew they needed God's help. And so they tried so very, very hard to catch God's attention. They would fast for long periods of time to show their devotion. They would gather for elaborate rituals. They would say extensive prayer. They heaped rules on themselves, hoping they could perform to the level they supposed God expected from them. But all it did was tighten their chests and make finger-pointing abound. God did respond, not because they had performed well enough, but because God is faithful, and God is compassionate. And God saw the suffering of the people and responded to them by showing grace. And the graceful response of God is these verses that Vicki read this morning. They're not a call to respond, to do more, to pile on the obligation. They're God's gift of a new posture. Listen to the language. Loose the bonds of injustice. Undo the knots. Break the yoke that binds and let free all that is oppressed and weighed down. Is not this the fast that I choose, says God? Not a fast that makes you respond to more and more and tightens you up, but a fast from having to hold it all at once. Not a fast that has you performing to catch God's attention, but a fast that incorporates you into God's movement in the world and assures you of God's presence with you in this work. Martin Luther must have been reading these verses when he wrote, The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe this, and everything is already done. And the everything here that Luther talks about isn't the feeding of the hungry or the housing of the homeless. That clearly has still yet to happen. The everything that has already been done in God and God's grace is our striving, our performing, our wondering about what we need to do to be enough. It's our attempts to catch God's attention by responding to it all on our own and the ways that we respond that tighten our chests and point our fingers. God responds with grace and faith trusts that grace. Faith trusts that God has responded to us with a love that relaxes the hold of these pressures. And so faith, our faith, follows God into the posture of loosening. It's a posture of faith because it trusts 
you don't have to hold it all. You don't have to take on more than is yours to take on. It's a posture of faith because it assumes that you don't have to have it all planned out right now. God will provide along the way. And it's a posture of faith because it makes space. Space for God to act. Space for your neighbor to come into the picture. For you to collaborate. And so it turns you outward to look at the assets that your neighbors have to offer. As you respond with them to the injustices in society. Yes, there's still the sharing of bread and the sheltering of bodies. But you don't do it from this posture anymore. You do it because you've become part of God's response to the world. You've been drawn into God's movement of extending freedom to every place of constriction. You find that your light breaks forth like the dawn and your healing springs up quickly. The work of feeding and housing, it might look identical in its outcome, but the spirit from which it is done is different. And it matters. I've seen the difference a posture can make. New Haven, Connecticut has the highest number of nonprofits per capita in the country. This is because it's home to Yale University, where I went to seminary, and Yale is filled with energetic and accomplished and well-connected, well-resourced people who want, among other things, to change the world. Dozens, hundreds of students would set up their own nonprofits during their time there, only to abandon them three to four years later. They'd have their eye, yes, on poverty and homelessness and hunger, and they'd get work done. But they'd also have their eye on their future employers, wondering if what they could do to stand out, wondering what they could do to gain attention. And so the work would get done, or at least a website would be built, and it was always done with a tight chest and a pointing of the finger. But blocks away from Yale's campus, though, the work was done with a different posture. I interned at a small, poor, Afro-Caribbean Lutheran church. And someone in that congregation wanted me and the pastor to accompany her in her grief to her infant nephew's funeral. The funeral was put on through her cousin's church, and I've just got to say, this was not a church like Mount Olivet. We met in a room that they had rented through someone's job connections. When it came time for the sermon in the funeral, everyone just kind of looked around the room, and no one stood up for a while, like, who's preaching? And until finally two grandmothers at the back stood up and walked to the front of the room, and one started her remarks with, it occurs to me in this moment, I could never do that. <laughs> and afterwards, these two grandmothers said, all right, everyone, it's time for the meal. 
Who's going to do the chicken? How about the rice? Who's got the dessert? All right, we'll meet back here in about two hours or whenever you're ready. Can you imagine a funeral for a baby without a preacher? A sermon without prep time? A funeral luncheon with no menu? The mind boggles. And yet, that whole day, I never worried, not even once, once about how things would turn out. Because they were in the posture of loosening. And it was contagious. No one was trying to prove anything to anyone. Everyone was just showing up, trusting that what was needed would be provided. A preacher, a sermon, lunch. God would take care of those things when they were called for. It was our job to simply show up to our neighbors and with our neighbors in the places of grief and hunger and trust that God would make us part of God's own response to the world. This is what faith looks like. In a world that makes our chests tight and fingers point, faith shows up without all the answers, open-handed, knowing how little it actually brings. Faith trusts that life isn't what happens after you're done responding. It trusts that life is found in becoming part of God's response. Lent, this season, it's a time of fasting. What if you took a fast like the one God chooses? Not from chocolate, not from staying up late, not from swearing or whatever your vice is. What if you fasted from assuming you're on the hook for it all? What if your fast was a fast from showing up out of weary obligation? What if it was a fast of taking the yoke off, the yoke of doing it by yourself or trying to prove you're good enough? What if you fasted from taking breaths that stop at your clavicle and watch then as God ushers you into deep breaths and a posture of loosening? For God's promise is sure. Your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Amen.